all those experiences really rooted me in this thing called nature. And we're all really rooted in this thing called nature to mm -hmm. some degree, perhaps more so if you live in a place like Missoula than if you live in Atlanta or something like that. But nature is the background against which the entirety of our existence takes place. Hello and welcome to A New Angle. I'm your host, Justin Angle, Associate Professor of Marketing at the University of Montana College of Business. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around Missoula, Montana. We're interested in creativity and hustle, and the people we'll speak with here exude both of those in spades. Buckle up and let's go. Hello and welcome back to A New Angle. Thanks for tuning in today. Today, I got the chance to sit down with philosophy professor Christopher Preston. I'll get to him in a minute, but first off, I just wanted to preview some exciting things coming up on the podcast in the next month. May is going to be an awesome month for a new angle. We did an interview a couple of days ago with Jeff Ament, basis for Pearl Jam. We got an interview coming up with Eric Sprunk, the COO of Nike. I did an interview with Rob Angel, the creator of Pictionary and many other guests coming up in May and beyond. So we are super excited. Uh, three things I can ask of you. One, if you like what you're hearing, please rate, review, and share the show. We're still trying to grow this audience. Get the word out. Help us do that, please. Secondly, give us some guest ideas. If you know of something awesome going on in the Missoula community, in this sort of University of Montana you. Uh, uh, Missoula ecosystem, let us know. Let me know. Send me a mail at uh, a new angle at umontana.edu. And if you have any other suggestions about the show, how we can make it better, let me know. And if you're interested in sponsoring the pod, we have sponsorship opportunities available. And uh, I think the month of May is going to be a good one for our sponsors, going to get the word out in front of a, a lot of people. So, anyway, enough shameless self promotion. I'll switch gears here to uh, Christopher. Christopher has a book just published called The Synthetic Age. He is an ethicist, and he ha the, the premise of this book is super interesting, terrifying, exciting, and just overall consuming. So the premise of the book is that human beings have essentially crossed the threshold into a fundamentally different type of relationship with the planet, that we have a control over, we have exhibited a control over things on this planet, whether it's intelligence, whether it's genetics, whether it's climate, that are just unprecedented in human history. And that raises a lot of big questions, questions that my uh, my little brain certainly isn't capable of, of, of even beginning to think about. Anyway, the book is called The Synthetic Age, MIT Press, available on Amazon. Without further ado, Christopher Preston. Okay, so I'm here today with philosophy professor Christopher Preston. Christopher, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's my pleasure, Justin. So you've been at UM for over 10 years now, is that right? 12 or 13 years. 12 or 13 years um, by way of the UK. Came to, I uh, looked a little bit at your bio, to Colorado State University for your master's degree. Was that, was that kind of your first uh, move to the U.S.? That was my landing point, Colorado. Yeah. yeah. So what made you choose Colorado State, Fort Collins, coming from the U.K.? So the, the reasoning is uh, a little bizarre. I desperately did not want to go put on a suit and go work in London. Okay. 
and all my friends, uh, my peer group were doing just that. So I thought, all right, how do I avoid getting serious about life? And it was drawn to my attention that uh, I could maybe do a grad program somewhere and be funded to do it if I got lucky. And there were some beautiful places in the United States offering grad programs mm -hmm. in this new area called environmental philosophy. And I thought, I need to be there. I need to be doing that. So uh, I sent in an application. And before I knew it, I was in the Rockies. I certainly can identify with the... Uh the motivation to avoid wearing a suit every day. Where I went to my undergrad, the culture was very much Wall Street focused. That's where people were going, and, and I knew that that was not for me, so that, that resonates. So Colorado State, studying environmental philosophy, then at some point you decided to continue with that ac academic path and, and go for the PhD? Yeah, that's correct. I started going up to Alaska when I was in Colorado. I hitched a ride with someone that first summer and started working uh, in the fishing industry and in the park service. And uh, those experiences in Colorado and Alaska put the environment kind of at the heart of my being. And uh, I figured after a while that I wanted to carry on thinking about this, talking about it, persuading people why it was important. And the academic path seemed like a good one to take. So I went from Colorado to Oregon, mm -hmm. uh, got a PhD in areas related to environmental philosophy. Then I got my first teaching job right here in Missoula. I had a one-year position. Yeah, I noticed that. So you were here for a bit and then over to South Carolina and back, and then back. Yep. I was replacing somebody who was away for a year here. Mm -hmm. I would have loved to have stayed, Yeah, but that wasn't an option at the time. So I went to South Carolina, got used to a different kind of landscape and tried to figure out how to love swamps instead of loving mountains. <laughs> right. Not sure I ever quite figured it out, but uh -huh. uh, after five years, an opportunity arose where I could move back here, and I've been loving it here ever since. Fantastic. And so what we want to talk about today is you have a new book about to be released, The, the Synthetic Age. Tell us about this project. So the book is coming out this week. So when you This say, week. Wow. Congratulations. That's a big deal. Thank you. I, I really appreciate it. Um, this book is about a dramatic change. I see it as if we are on the point of changing the world forever. So that sounds pretty hyperbolic, <laughs> That's a big right? statement. Yeah. <laughs> but I think there's no exaggeration here. Okay. Um, the, the little background I gave you about Alaska and Colorado and Oregon, all those experiences really rooted me in this thing called nature. And we're all really rooted in this thing called nature to mm -hmm. some degree, perhaps more so if you live in a place like Missoula than if you live in Atlanta or something like that. But nature is the background against which the entirety of our existence takes place. And that background, it varies. It goes through various sort of climatic and physical, biological transitions. But for the most part, it's this relatively stable background context. Okay. And it's a context we didn't build. And when you say stable, do you mean that the sort of rules in which that system operates Sort of the parameters? If you, if you like, yeah. Okay. There's, there's these sort of broad parameters. Okay, they're not completely stable. Hurricanes come along every now and again. Yeah. You get droughts, you get cold periods, you get crop failures. But broadly speaking, it's been relatively stable. And people talk about the Holocene as this epoch in which humanity evolved, and it's been a relatively stable epoch. Okay. So that's our background context. And it's always been a context that we didn't choose. We just got it from the mm -hmm. earth, right? Mm -hmm. What's happening now is humans are learning how to tweak that context in really significant ways. Yeah. They're learning how to mess with DNA. 
learning how to alter climate. And so that background against which the whole of human history has taken place is transitioning from being a natural background into being an artifactual background or something we design. And so I think that really is a big deal. I think this is a change that has not happened before in the history of the planet. I think it's a dramatic rupture from the past, and I think we ought to know about it. And so when you say we ought to know about it, I mean, in some ways we do know about it, although we're maybe not acknowledging it. Like we have this debate about climate change. Is it real? Are humans affecting it? Whatever. But that debate seems to be down at, at such a low level relative to the way you're thinking of it. You're thinking about, you know, humans have had some impact on the climate. And now maybe we have some agency in how that impact can play out. So can we get into maybe an example of what climate looks like in this future epoch that you're thinking of? Or, or I don't know if it's future or we're in it, right? That's that's sort of your argument. No, that's a perfect question, Justin. So um, you're right, like climate is one of those kind of background forces or background features. And you're right, climate is changing and we're having to adapt to that. But here's what I think is key, and it does revolve around agency. Everything that has happened so far has been a bit of an accident. No one driving the car is saying, I want to heat up the planet. Or no one constructing a coal-fired power plant is saying, I'd love it to be hotter in Montana in the winters. <laughs> yeah. But it's just happened. It's just kind of happened by accident. And you can run through that argument with things like species extinction, with things like pollution in uh, the Arctic, uh, with pesticide residues uh, in our waterways. They're all big accidents in a certain respect. We never meant to create global scale change. Okay. Technologies now allow us to deliberately create global scale change. And let me give you an example with climate. Some people are worried that the weather's getting too hot uh, and maybe we can do something to cool it down. What can you do? Well, you can put particles up in the stratosphere, which will actually filter out incoming solar energy. Okay. So you create a kind of a haze up there. Sure. You cool down the planet. Not as much solar radiation gets through. And maybe you can avoid some of the problems that climate change is promising to foist upon us. Mm -hmm. It's a dramatic engineering project. Yeah. It's actually a planetary engineering project. And so how I read that is I, I read it as humans for the first time saying, let's take a planetary process and let's deliberately change it. Let's make it so that it works for us. And so humans are taking the reins in a way that they've never done before. I mean, even with climate change, with fossil fuels, we didn't take the reins with climate change. We just messed up. Yeah. But with climate engineering, we're taking the reins. We're actually saying we can shape this planet the way we want it. Is this happening? Like, are, like who's doing the shaping and reins taking? Well, we're, we're right on the cusp. Okay. So, you know, the book walks through a whole suite of technologies from the atom all the way up to the atmosphere. Sure. So there's five or six technologies that I discuss in the book there. Is it happening yet? With almost all of these technologies, we are right on the cusp. So this week, actually, I'm traveling to Boston, going to a conference at Harvard, and it's about climate engineering and terraforming. Okay, so, terraforming. Yeah, we have to have a definition of that. So terraforming is the idea of shaping a whole planet. Sure. Um, and people have talked about this in relation to Mars, uh, 
for years. Like, could humans go and terraform Mars right. so that it was hospitable to us? But the, the conference is on climate engineering here on Earth and terraforming up in Mars because it's the same type of management. It's humans taking control of a whole planet. Yeah. And the conference is at Harvard because there's a group at Harvard who this summer are going to carry out the first actual test of engineering the climate by putting these particles up in the stratosphere. So we're right there. This is the moment where this stuff is going to start to happen. And so it seems like the, the technology is probably in some ways the easiest part, right? How do you get, it's like you said, this is a global uh, action solution, whatever you want to call it. It takes global action to address this, to take this agency. So how do we do it? How do we do it at a global level? I mean, we can't get countries to talk to one another. Or, you know, we're so in the weeds with that stuff. It seemed like the technology would be the easy part. The human problem is the, the more difficult one. Yeah, you've kind of hit the nail on the head. So notice I'm an ethicist and philosopher. I'm not an engineer. Yeah. Um, as far as the engineering goes, it's not that technology is simple, but it, it's a solvable kind of problem sure. technologically. But as far as the ethics and the politics... I mean, you're right. If you're going to alter the climate, you're doing it for the whole globe at the same time. So you're doing it for seven and a half billion people. Right. And the sorts of interests that those seven and a half billion people are going to have in this are going to be different. Mm-hmm. It's not like climate change affects everybody in exactly the same way. Right. I was in Arctic Norway a couple of springs ago, and in April, all the snow disappeared, which was very unusual. Mm-hmm. It was the Arctic, right? The snow was supposed to be there till May. And I said to somebody uh, in, in Tromso, where I was, so what do you think about this weather? Isn't it kind of bizarre? And he said, I love it. Sure. He's really excited about his spring starting earlier. Mm-hmm. But what that indicates is that everybody's investment in the prospect of climate engineering is going to be different. So how do you get everybody to sit down and agree on a global strategy? I mean, we can't even do that with things like fossil fuel emissions. Right, right. So the idea that we could do it with this intentional manipulation of a whole planet, uh, I mean, it really sort of boggles the mind as to what would be involved in that. Yeah. And then, I mean, let's shift gears to a different domain, because as you said, this is happening in various domains. So the other kind of obvious one that comes to mind that people talk about and read about, it's in the popular press, is genetic engineering. You know, one of your areas of expertise is synthetic biology, right? And so how, how have humans waded into, whether it's consciously or not, manipulating biology? Okay, yeah, good, good question. And it's, it's interesting in the same way that the climate engineering topic is interesting. So obviously humans have manipulated genomes to some extent for millennia. I mean, every time you sort of crossbreed sure. uh, a crop or, you know, you create a dog that has floppier ears than the last one, uh, humans have been influencing the way that evolution works. But they've always taken some raw materials and just kind of nudged them in one direction, just give, given them a little push in another direction and gradually steered something along a certain trajectory so that it provides better food for you or provides a nicer company if it's a domestic animal or something like that. It's always been a nudging, a gentle shaping. Yep. Synthetic biology does something radically different. Synthetic biology says, let's design a genome on a computer. Let's design something that we think will be useful for us. 
And then let's go into a lab and let's put the chemicals together and build it. Mm. So let's make genomes. This is completely new. This has not happened in the history of the planet. But what humans are saying is we'll take a process that used to be a natural process and we will make it our process. We will do the designing. We will do the building. And this is just about starting to happen now. So when you, Sorry to interrupt, but when you say the building, do you mean the actual genesis of a living thing? That's exactly what I mean. Okay. Um, and this is why I think this is a big deal, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, if you can construct a genome from scratch, right? Not just alter a genome, not just nudge it or manipulate it, but design and build one from scratch, then you are building life. Yeah. And where we're at right now is you can build genomes, bacterial genomes, so relatively simple ones, but you can build them in the lab, you can take them, and you can put them inside existing bacteria, and you can have that genome you built take over the running of that bacterium. Wow. So these are synthetic organisms. So just so I'm kind of clear on how this works, so you're not exactly snapping your finger it's conception is not the right word but like you're not bringing uh some stuff from its current state to an alive state you're taking a bacteria that already exists and injecting a new operating system if you will is that is that kind of how this works that that's a good way to put it that's where we are at with the technology right now okay is, is you take the shell of the existing bacterium and you put the dna that you design into it okay and one of my students came up with uh, a name for this. He called it genetic hijacking. I think that's, yeah, a, that's a pretty good term, pretty descriptive term yeah, for it, right? Yeah. So that's the state of the art right now. But the idea, obviously, is the shell is presumably something else we could build at some point. I mean, if you can build the genome, that's probably the complicated part. So building the shell would be the next kind of step here, in which case it literally would be creating life out of nothing. To me, that's that's sort of historic in, in a way that few other things uh, in human history or natural history have ever been. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's as you said before, like a lot of these forces or trends or whatever you want to call them have sort of came to be via accident where, you know, whether it's climate, whether it's the synthetic biology, these things are the uh, analogy used of grabbing the reins. You know, this, this level of control. And that is, is interesting. And it, it, it kind of raises the question, you know, I've heard this, this statement phrase before, you know, we now have the opportunity to outperform evolution. And there's the, this assumption in there that the, whatever we do is going to be outperformed. Like, does, out, does, does evolution need to be outperformed? Can it be outperformed? Are we going to do it better? It seems like it's working okay on some dimensions. So how does that, how does, What's your thinking around that issue? Yeah, like I said earlier, I'm an ethicist. And so when somebody says, let's see if we can outperform evolution, a lot of ethical red flags get raised. Of course, here. yeah. I mean, that there's questions of uh, what's the humanity's proper role in the scheme of things here. Is that the sort of thing we should be designing and, and managing and building? Uh, can we be sure that the things that we design and build will continue to do the things we had planned they were going to do? Um, of course, uh, evolutionary principles, Darwinian principles of selection and mutation, those things will still be in operation. Mm -hmm. So we'll build these things and perhaps let them loose to perform work for us in the environment. 
And can we be completely sure that the thing we've designed is going to perform according to our design criteria? So there's a lot of ethical concerns here, um, simply about, on the one hand, whether the technology will perform as designed, but another ethical concern is, well, all right, who is going to be pushing these technologies? Are these technologies that we want? Or are these technologies that are only there because people can make a lot of money out of them? Um, do we want evolution to fall into human hands just to make somebody a few bucks? So when you're, Christopher, when you're thinking of these things as a philosopher, as an ethicist, you, you pose the questions very um, eloquently, but does your sort of framework and your work lead you to propose answers to those questions or, 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 or pathways through which governance societies or whatever should arrive at those answers? So it, that's a good question. I, I recall one time I was sitting in a room full of uh, marine biologists. This was when I was in South, when I was in South Carolina. Mm -hmm. And there were some fishermen there, and uh, there were some political scientists there. And there was this problem in this one bay in South Carolina about pollution and about the shrimp industry. Okay. And this marine biologist just laid out the problem just in just exquisite detail. He just kind of nailed it, all the different kind of tensions, and he showed what a complicated scenario this was. And then he said, well, we've got an ethicist in the room, Christopher. What's the answer here? <laughs> Right. And I tell that anecdote because there is this perception that if you're an ethicist, you know how to solve you're, That problems. you're going to be an arbiter, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now, would you trust an ethicist to decide your big moral dilemmas? <laughs> I certainly wouldn't do that. Um, and so I see the, the role of the ethicist here to certainly prompt questions and then frame sets of questions and frame them alongside what's at stake in okay. each sort of a question. Okay. And so if you can kind of lay out options, then, you know, the people who should be deciding these are, is everybody essentially. I mean, these are very public questions. When we're talking about a planet, when we're talking about evolution itself, yeah. These questions don't belong to any one set of people. They don't belong to the business people. They don't belong to the engineers. They don't belong to the ethicists. These questions are shared questions. And so you know, the best I can do is to lay these out and try and show what's at stake and then hopefully engage people in what will be a very difficult but very important kind of conversation. Mm-hmm. So in your book, is you're, you're making the central argument that this transition from the Holocene epoch to what do we call it, where we're now, Anthropocene? But you're arguing that it's actually a synthetic yeah, epoch. Yeah, exactly. Is that, I don't know if I'm following the chronology That, that right, is perfect. But... You got it perfectly right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the, the idea there is by making this argument, by creating this awareness of how things have fundamentally changed you'll initiate a conversation where these questions are raised. Now, to me, I've done a little bit of rudimentary reading on artificial intelligence. And this is another area that kind of fits into this category in a lot of ways. Um, artificial intelligence in many ways could be a tremendous bounty. Like if it's done, I shouldn't say right, if it's done in a certain way, humans might never have to work again. But then how do we redesign a society where 
people don't have to work. I don't know if everybody likes their job. You love your work, don't you? I love my work on many dimensions, but if, if I was facing a world where I, it wasn't at all necessary, what would I do with myself? How, how would all these different power structures and organizational structures and our systems of identity and everything sort of needs to be rethought out? And do we as a, as a society have that capability? It's impossibly complicated to think about this yeah. stuff. And, um, like, I don't even know how to kind of get my head around how to ask a question in this topic. <laughs> and yeah, so I, I cut you off there. But yeah, it's so hard to think about. You, you have to start really small and, and go piece by piece and, and go with the things that you're confident with. But um, there's a line that I use in my intro to environmental ethics class. It's easier to be a member of the Chemical Manufacturers Association or of Earth First than of neither. Right. And, you know, to me, that's a, a telling line. It's very easy to say, yes, we embrace this. It's pretty easy to say, no, we reject this. But to be somewhere in between and to figure out, well, there are huge benefits to be gained from this technology, but the technology comes with certain costs. It's just very difficult to occupy that place. And the discussion becomes very much more complicated. Mm -hmm. It's impossible to sort of think your way through it all at one time. And so carving out this middle ground, I think, is incredibly important to recognize the benefits of technology and to recognize the costs. And people don't want to hear about the middle ground. I mean, in some of the uh, initial discussions about this book that I've had with people, I've been pigeonholed as being extremely anti-technology, mm. and I've been pigeonholed as being way too enthusiastic about technology. Yeah, it, it's funny. I, I I don't read it either of those ways, but I can see how people would, would fall into those camps. And Well, I mean, we like to fall into tribes. Yeah. And, and yeah, I see myself as being somewhere in the middle. Um, I mean, nanotechnologies is one of the technologies I discuss in the book. Um, without nanotechnologies, our solar panels would be way less efficient. Right. And I think we want more efficient solar panels, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and yet nanotechnology uh, does this rearranging of matter and the creation of material properties that are pretty rare in planetary history. We're sort right. of opening up uh, new kinds of arrangements with new kinds of properties, that some of which can be quite scary and potentially dangerous to us. So nanotechnology is a great example. You've got massive potential benefits that environmentalists should embrace. Uh, and you've got some quite scary costs that environmentalists should be on the alert against. And so how to talk about which bits of nanotechnology we want and which bits we don't is incredibly complicated. And so like most things, truth, if there is such a thing, is, is, in, is in the middle and as, as we kind of wind this conversation down, I'd like to transition into talking about the role of your area of study, philosophy, in helping educate a future workforce. And I say workforce broadly, not just people going to work in software companies, people that are in policy, in law, in research, whatever, but broadly a workforce. How... how do, do the disciplines like philosophy, how are they critical in preparing our students in many ways for the challenges that you're laying out here? So this is a fantastic time to be a philosopher. Mm -hmm. it, it is a perfect time to be a philosopher. Why you is You look that? like you're thriving. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because it's, it's the perfect time because we live in this allegedly post-truth era. Okay. 
the all these conflicting narratives that are getting thrown at us through social media all day long, everything has been th- thrown up for grabs, it seems. Of course, it's not the case that every piece of information you get on social media is of the same merit. Mm-hmm. And so the skill of being able to think through complex uh, situations, think through complex kind of debates, think through complex propositions, that's exactly what philosophers train students to do. Okay. And so I stand in front of my class and, and I say, all right, we're going to talk about three things in, in class today. None of them, again, I have clear answers to them, but I want you to dwell in that ambiguous space. I want you to spend time saying to yourself, well, we could go this way on on this topic, but equally easily you could go this other way. And going one way or the other is going to depend on which premises you adopt, where you stand on the foundational parts of the platform there. And, And so students need to spend time in these complicated kind of ambiguous spaces. And then they need to be able to follow lines of thought through these spaces and, and see where those lines of thought would take them. And so this is this is one of the skills we teach in philosophy, or we like to think we teach mm-hmm. it. And my goal, my, my task, is to get students excited about being in a space which very often they'd rather not be in. You know, it's, it's much sort of easier to, to just grab the headline, grab the headline that feels good, uh, and kind of stick with that and not think behind the headline. Yeah. Um, and so this this is, you know, broadly it's part of a humanities education, but it's certainly part of a critical thinking education, part of a philosophical education. And we need a lot of this right now. I mean, we, we are, I guess I could have written a different book that was not about technology, but it was about society and where we're at right now. And we right. really are at this critical kind of juncture, I think. Maybe that's the next book. It could potentially be the next book. <laughs> well, that's, yeah. So, you know, I'll put you on the spot a little bit. We haven't had this conversation previously, but how do we here at the university, University of Montana is in a bit of an identity crisis period. And part of that is, a big part of that is our, our budget situation. You know, and when resources are drastically constrained, um, people, as we mentioned before, can descend into their camps. It's very easy to say, no, we're all about this or we're all about that. And, and our new president proposes that actually we're, we're, we have a unique opportunity as an institution because of our ability to do many things and com- to combine disparate disciplines into a unique educational experience. So how can we do better, you know, as, as uh, from my perspective in the College of Business, how can I do better collaborating with somebody like you in philosophy to, to make sure that our students are asking the right questions and approaching the challenges you're, you're identifying with a thoughtful mindset? We have to be bold. Um, and I think the, the president is, is right about this, that we, we're facing sort of an existential challenge. Mm-hmm. We've got to figure our way through it. We've got to look at what our natural strengths are. Um, and here in Montana, I mean, one thing, to, to me anyway, which is obviously a natural strength, uh, is that we're in this incredible location with these incredible researchers, many of whom love to do their work outside in this landscape. And uh-huh. you know, people around the country, when they hear I'm at the University of Montana, their eyes kind of uh, brighten up and, and they're so excited essentially about the nature that we have here. Right. Right. So we take that, which is our, um, if you like, our sort of inbuilt strength uh, in these issues of sustainability 
and we figure out how to talk to each other. So, you know, just as we're sitting here, a philosophy professor and a professor in a business school, sort of figuring out well, what is the topic here that we're, yeah, yeah. we're trying to discuss. We figure out how to talk to each other. We learn how to be good translators. Uh, we don't complexify our language to the extent that the other cannot understand it. Mm. In academics, there's a lot of pressure to do that. Yeah, jargon to exclude people. There's a lot of pressure to do that because you, you have to convince people you're really smart all the time. Mm -hmm. That is not the way to do interdisciplinary work. Like the way to do it is to translate stuff into the terms that you can both share. Right. Uh, and I've worked on a number of interdisciplinary projects here. And you know, one of the striking things is how hard it is to actually all sit around the same table and have the same conversation. It takes a long time to figure out how to have that conversation. You, you got to put time into it. You got to put energy into it. It can be very frustrating. Yeah. Uh, you need the right people. You need patient people. Uh, but you need people who recognize that that's where the important work needs to be done. You know, there's plenty of very complicated papers getting written in disciplines across campus. We don't need more of those. We need people to be able to talk to each other across disciplines. And it, that's something I love doing. It's something I plan to kind of do more and more of as things go along. But uh, you're right. It's a, it's a challenge we face and we're going to have to be bold to address it. Maybe we can continue this conversation and I can talk you into letting me help you on this, this next book about the challenges of society. Anyway, uh, I know you have to run to a dissertation defense, part of our service here at the University of Montana. Um, but congratulations on the book, The Synthetic Age, uh, launching this week. So we're excited that you came to A New Angle to talk about that. And um, good luck with the book and then all your other projects. I appreciate it, Justin. Thanks for having me on. All right. Hope you enjoyed that chat with Christopher. Remember, the book is called The Synthetic Age. It's available anywhere you get books, uh, Amazon.com, local bookshops, all that stuff. So check it out. Um, coming up next week, we have Lisa Mills. Lisa is spearheading a really awesome program here at the University of Montana, Elephant Friendly Tea. And if those three words never have been together for you in the same sentence, stay tuned for next week's episode. You will learn all about the interaction between tea farming and elephants and uh, the great work she's doing in that space. See you next week. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. Remember that A New Angle was brought to you by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. They're our first sponsor, and we can't thank them enough. CED is one of the largest electrical wholesale supply companies in the country with nearly 600 locations nationwide. CED is a privately owned business-to-business -business company that distributes just about every piece of equipment you need to keep your lights on, your energy flowing, and your lifestyle comfortable. CED is also an important employer in our community, and they have a keen interest in University of Montana graduates. To explore career opportunities, check out www.cedcareers.com. Moving forward, if you have any suggestions for guests, cool people doing awesome things, please let us know. And if you enjoy this podcast, there are several ways you can support it. First, rate us on iTunes. Ratings help others find the show. Second, write a review. The more reviews we get, and hopefully positive ones, the more we can grow. And third, please just tell your friends about it. In addition, you can also support A New Angle financially. For information on sponsorship opportunities, please visit our website, www.business.umt.edu. There you will also find a link to support the pod. 
Before we go, I'd like to thank a few folks for making this project happen. First, my colleagues at the College of Business for supporting this endeavor. In particular, Professor Josh Herbold for writing and recording original music for the show. We also have music provided by Switchback Records, a student-run record label here at the college. I'd also like to thank Elizabeth Willey, recent UM graduate Michelle DeFluke, and the entire comms team here at the College of Business. And finally, thanks to my producer, Stefan Borsum. As we close, if you have any suggestions, comments, questions, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word and be sure to use the hashtag anewangle when you do. Thanks a lot and see you next time.